Hey, welcome to The Futurist. I'm Ben Rohde and my co-host Alex Sleitman here. Uh, and we were just having a, a conversation uh, and, and we we're, were talking about some amazing stuff that we really want to talk about here. And we talked for about 15 minutes and realized that this should all be on the show. And so the show is going to be a little bit shorter today, but uh, it's going to be short but powerful. So Alex, uh, can you recap, please, for our amazing people, what all the amazing uh, stuff is that you were just talking about? Sure. Well, we were talking about the the vote that comes up on Monday of the electors. The electors have to confirm what the voters uh, said um, on November 8th and 9th when we declared Donald Trump the winner. And I have... the Electoral College who, for whatever reason, do not vote for their party's designated candidate. Since the founding of the Electoral College, there have been 157 faithless electors. 37, uh, uh, 71 of these votes were changed because the original candidate died before the day on which the Electoral College cast its votes. Oh, wow. Three electors chose to abstain rather than vote for their party's nominee. The other 83 electoral votes were changed on the personal initiative of the elector. So just as a starting point, we'd have to have nearly 50% of all the faithless electors in the history of the United States vote against what they promised and swore up and down and uh, to vote for, for, for the vote to change. Now, if, it's going to, if it were ever going to happen, it would happen now, but uh, I personally don't think it's going to happen. So sometimes electors change their votes in large groups, such as when 23 Virginia electors acted together in 1836. So it's been a very long time since, you know, uh, about multiple dozens of electors acted together, and we need three dozen this time. Many times, however, these electors stood alone in their decisions. As of the 2004 election, no elector has changed the outcome of an election by voting against his or her party's designated candidate. So that's 12 years. Despite these 157 faithless votes and a Supreme Court ruling allowing states to empower political parties to require formal pledges from presidential electors, that's Ray versus Blair, 21 states still do not require their members of the Electoral College to vote for their party's designated candidate. There are 30 states plus the District of Columbia that require faithless, uh, faithfulness issue um, a small variety of rarely enforced punishments for faithful, faithless electors, including fines and misdemeanors. So that's the, the gist of it. But here's, here's what's happening in, in the case. You have the people who voted for Donald Trump, um, and you have the people who uh, voted for one of his opponents, Hillary Clinton, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, and you have the people who, who didn't vote, and you have the people who couldn't vote. So... Uh, of those people, the, the, the issue that's most interesting to me is the people who voted for Donald Trump who are now unhappy because there are a number of things that he promised to do, for instance, build a wall. And now uh, since the 60 Minutes episode, it's like, well, maybe I'll build a fence. 
but the core thing uh, isn't there. Um, deport, you know, 11 million people. Well, maybe 2 million, you know, maybe, uh, it, but it's really hard to do so. And nobody, uh, nobody anticipated that the appointments of all of the cabinet officials that I can think of were of people who were said they were going to destroy the agency or did something. So, for instance, Rick Perry famously, infamously in the debates, it's probably the dumbest moment of a debate ever, was, said, I'm going to eliminate three different federal agencies. And people said, okay, which? And he said, well, Department of Education and one other. And then he said, and I, and I can't remember the third. And he turned to Ron Paul and said, well, you know, as if to beg Ron Paul to tell him what agency Rick was as leader was going to delete. And that agency that he couldn't remember was the Department of Energy. And so putting the guy who couldn't even remember the name of the agency he was going to eliminate in as the head of that agency, um, when it's a nuclear agency, and it, the Department of Energy doesn't just make sure that the nuclear reactors in the United States, which uh, last time I looked were producing 19% of our electricity, um, still probably not too far away. Um, and, and let's just say one thing about those, those nuclear reactors. They have a design life of 40 years, and we haven't built a nuclear reactor in the U.S. in 40 years. So they have a design life of 40 years, and they're all more than 40 years old. And the guy who's in charge of the agency that's supposed to overlook whether they're safe or not um, is kind of an idiot. And, uh, I mean, I'm saying that based on public opinion, watching him in the debates when he couldn't even remember the name of an agency, stumbled in his notes. It's one of the most cringeworthy moments in a debate ever. Oh, no. And he's in charge of not only the nuclear reactors, but and, and I haven't seen this in the press, so I'm hoping in every show of the futures we can say at least a few things that are not in the press. Uh, that, that includes the commissioning and decommissioning of nuclear weapons. In fact, there is a lot of suspicion of the Department of Defense uh, potentially doing a coup. That's in the core of the government. And so they don't, the Department of Defense doesn't have control of the nuclear weapons. That's controlled by the Department of Energy. So you're going to basically give the nuclear, uh, a nuclear capability to a person who has not uh, entirely ruled out secession from Texas and is, you know, has flirted with these ideas. I, I just find that very odd. But uh, putting in Rex Tillerson as the Secretary of State, uh, based on Condoleezza Rice's recommendation, uh, let's let's look at Condoleezza Rice. She was part of the group that said that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and she worked for Chevron. She has an oil tanker named after her. So a person with an oil tanker named after her who is never part of the campaign, nobody ever said during the campaign that she'd be giving advice and making decisions, um, is recommending an oil executive. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, for one thing, oil is about 80% of our, of our energy consumption. Um, electricity is about one-third of all the energy we use. And electricity right now is cheaper if you use solar. The cost of solar can be as low as, for, for, uh, for on-site solar, can be as low as two or three cents a kilowatt hour. And by the end of the first term of whoever is president, I presume it will be Trump, um, that cost will be below one cent a kilowatt hour. Nuclear power, by comparison, new nuclear power is about 30 cents a kilowatt hour. So, but, but also, um, only Saudi Arabia 
does large-scale production of electricity using oil. And solar is going is chomping at uh, chomping and chomping and chomping at gasoline sales. So the United States has 4.5% of the world's population, but it consumes 35% of the gasoline. Well, according to Stanford's Tony Siba, if we look at solar as being 1% of the electricity in 2014 and then doubling every two years so that this year it'll be 2% of our electricity than 4%, basically what you get is by 2024, solar is 32% of our electricity and in which case it can replace coal. And then another uh, two years, 2026, it's 64%, it replaces natural gas. And by uh, 2030, it replaces all of the oil. So we actually have a future in which the oil companies, if things just continue as they have been, um, coal, natural gas, and oil are dead by 2030. So right now, over $5 trillion, and I've heard that it's close to, it could be as much as $10 trillion, has divested from um, fossil fuels. I don't think that there's anything that Rex Tillerson or Donald Trump can do to stop solar from beating fossil fuels. Right. So these choices don't really make sense to me. And I guess what we, you, you asked me to say what we said before, so I'll, I'll stop there and then we'll, we can have a dialogue about it. But um, somebody summarized uh, Donald Trump's picks for cabinet secretaries who want to destroy their departments, like um, you know uh, Ms. DeVos from Amway, who is the outspoken person about charter schools. The idea is if, you, if there was a department of the Titanic that Donald Trump would nominate the iceberg uh, as the cabinet secretary for that department. And now, so you have all these supporters of Donald Trump, but I don't know that his supporters were told during the campaign, uh, by the way, I'm going to seek to put in opponents of the departments that they run in, you know, for most of the departments, if not all of them. That wasn't what he promised. And I think that there are a lot of people who are saying, well, but if we're not getting what we promised even now before the electors vote, what are we going to get? There's a lot of there's a lot of buyer's remorse among people who are supporters. That's what we were talking about before. Yeah. So uh, now one one of the yes. biggest thing is is like, you know, the biggest thing that, that we were worried about if if Hillary gets elected is like a civil war. Right. This is what what Trump's supporters were talking about. Right maintaining the right to bear arms and, and to use them to overthrow the government if they need to, right? And so now I think we're at a point where, I mean, I've just Trump keeps... I, I don't know that I agree. I mean, I respect what you've seen maybe different from what I've seen, but I didn't ever get that particular message. Uh, yeah, I got I've, that I've they, seen, would, they would do that if they were cheated in the election, but they weren't cheated in the election. You know, he won the election. Right, and you, you understand that... that Trump probably would have said he got cheated, if, even if he didn't, and his his supporters would have would have listened to that if he actually wanted in, if he actually did. And so what it seems like now is that he doesn't want in. I mean, what better way to try to get your ass thrown out than by, like you said, appointing all the the proponents, the, the opponents of the. Uh, the the agencies that they're supposed to be running right it's it's absurd i can't think of a better way to not to have electors throw you out than that other than to skip security briefings and have people <laughs> say this and then still not go right so you know it's doing everything because people go well 
Well, and then and on, I don't, on top of and that, I don't, he's even he's even like he's even at his rallies, and this is what we were talking about before. Even at his rallies, he's you know people are saying lock her up, they're chanting lock her up, and he's like nah nah nah, that played well before the election, but now eh, let her go. She's been through enough, and they're like, what are you talking about? They're like, no, we well, really want I, to lock her up. I think that that I think that that's in a different category from everything else, and the reason is because strategically, if he said he was going after her, then. Obama could work out something where she is charged by something in the federal government and then given a pardon, and then under the double jeopardy clause, you, you, know, you can't basically be tried for something, the same thing. So a pardon could be in place. Mm. It could be a strategic move whereby he's simply you know, saying this, and then if and when he gets in office, and again, I do believe he'll get into office, then I believe that um, then he, he can do something. And also, he can just simply leave it to his attorney general. And I, and I also presume Which that uh, Sessions, Senator Sessions, will be Gowdy. confirmed as... Sorry? Uh, he, he chose Gowdy for that position, right? Who, is, uh, who absolutely doesn't like uh, Hillary. Well, I mean, who, whoever is, ends up being confirmed by the Senate uh, as attorney general... Uh, will uh, will be able to bring that case, and he can say, "Oh, it's not my decision." Right. So it's one of those things that it doesn't matter what he says now. There are other people who can still go after her, and also any state where the Clinton Foundation was doing business can go after her for 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 the Clinton Foundation RICO. Right. I mean, I've heard it confirmed from all across the political spectrum that that you know where there's smoke, there's fire. That's absolutely true in the case of the, the Clinton Foundation. And I predicted before the election, first of all, I predicted that Trump would win. But then they, beyond that, I, I said that the donations to the Clinton yeah. Foundation would drop by over 90%, thereby proving that it was always pay to play. It wasn't really a charity because if you're putting in money because you know you want the Clintons to do charity work, well, then you're 100 times happier because they have a hundred times more time than they had during the campaign, right. or they would if she and, were president. No now they have time to do it. But you know, it's clear when when Norway and Australia and other places are saying, "Well, you know, we're 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 dropping our commitment, you know, almost entirely." It's uh, you know, you it, I just I don't understand how people like James Carville, uh, who just go on TV and just basically say anybody who questions Clinton Foundation is trying to kill. Africans, you know, and all this kind of nonsense. It's it was it was so clearly uh, bribery, and this is part of the reason that a lot of people, returning to the whole idea of faithless electors, that whatever people say, there isn't another person who has a mandate. Hillary Clinton certainly doesn't have a mandate, um, and uh, neither does Case. I keep hearing Kasich's name mentioned. Kasich during the primaries only won the state that he is currently the governor of uh -huh. that's not a that's a, that's as far from a mandate as you can get right. um, besides you know let's say not winning any state but um, for a person who won anything it was the least that you could win and still claim that you won something it's not enough to be president so I don't think that a Republican controlled Congress which has to approve whatever the electors say is going to want to uh, deny Donald Trump and his supporters the chance to govern. However, I do think that he is going to get less benefit of the doubt uh, than 
anybody whose parties control both houses of Congress. And if we want to see, well, what does that get you if you control both houses of Congress? All we have to do is look back to January 21st, 2009, to when President Obama, freshly elected President Obama, held the White House and Congress, uh, and both houses of Congress. And in the end, he he had to struggle to get his legislation passed. Right. And in the end, uh, he lost control of both houses of Congress. And so uh, just having control of both houses of Congress means nothing. And it's certainly possible for uh, control to change of, of the House of Representatives um, in 2018. And it's possible for the Senate to con uh, change hands within the, the administration as well. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it, it, it's not that big a majority. And a lot will come down to what happens when the Supreme Court justice is um, approved because if we start having things like um, rolling back a woman's right to, you know, federal right to an abortion, if we, you know, redo Roe v. Wade and stuff, there's just going to be a lot of turmoil. Yeah. And I can see from the success of Standing Rock, of, of DAPL, Dakota Access Pipeline, yeah. where, you know, they, they basically the army was forced to back down uh, that the coalition of 350 Indian nations plus veterans plus environmental groups that this kind of coalition is going to hold together and I can see people uh, people protesting quite seriously and the thing about about the oil business is it's really really easy to to protest it because everything is in a fixed asset in a fixed place and then you have these really incredibly dumb th things that the oil industry is doing. And then I defy you. I'll, I'll say this and I'll stop and wait. I defy you to think of anything that's as dumb as what the oil industry is doing. They are fracking. And I worked my way through MIT as a drilling engineer. Uh, so I, I know what, you know, and I work for the pioneer of fracking. So basically what you're doing is um, when you're drilling for oil, and we've drilled 6 million wells in the United States with conventional methods and then we have about 150,000 drilled with unconventional methods meaning effectively that you're stealing water so when you hear fracking just replace that with stealing water polluting it and then just sticking it somewhere like the mafia when it's in charge of getting rid of chemical waste or, or nuclear waste or things we'll put it in a big truck and then just open the valve and drive it down the back roads you know and just let it go onto the roads because right. they they don't know of a place to legally put it so fracking is all about taking water for free and then dumping it for free under high pressure and what that does is it causes earthquakes so you go from Oklahoma which is not in a seismically active area and went for years without any perceivable earthquakes to having hundreds of earthquakes a year now that's just that's just mean that's just bad for society but here's where it's dumb here's where it's self-defeating they had earthquakes in Cushing Oklahoma which is the pipeline interconnect capital of the world and that that actually came close to damaging the pipelines if they keep fracking around Cushing a town of 9,000 people they could actually break apart the pipelines that connect natural gas so it flows from one end of the country to the other you know and people can trade it they could turn natural gas into a a more localized commodity rather than a nationalized commodity by breaking the pipelines and if they really push the oil and gas stuff so hard there, you know, I don't want to encourage any 
any kind of, of, of malicious activity. But Edward Abbey has written whole books about this, the, the monkey wrench gang. You can look it up and see what he was advocating. So sooner or later, people are going to say, well, look, this, this government is against us human beings. So we need to, you know, we need to be against anything that it supports. And I, I, I just cringe for what will happen in the country. And I wouldn't, I would not, I don't think we'll have a civil war, but I could see a war against particular corporations which have um, which have a list of things that are almost at the level of crimes against humanity. So the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska, which is still not completely cleaned up, and Exxon knowing about global warming and then hiding that information and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to discredit people about global warming. So, you know, the idea that you appoint Rex Tillerson um, as Secretary of State, it, to some extent, it means that you're accepting that it was okay to cover up vital information from the American public that affected us diplomatically. And diplomatically, the U.S. is almost completely isolated on the issue of doubling down on oil versus trying to reduce fossil fuels so we can reduce greenhouse gases, so we can reduce the probability of global warming, which is just like buying insurance. So I just see this critical mass of things, and I, I don't know who in the end will be left as a constituency for, for what's left. You know, like I don't know that there's a, there are people who want so much to destroy and disable the U.S. government that there's, a, that there's, a, there's going to be you know, a majority of people supporting that. I just don't see it. Okay, so I, I, have, I, I have an answer to your question of what could be more dumb than uh, the uh, oil companies fracking and against their own interests. And then I actually have okay. two, two questions for you um, that I, I think uh, I mean, I, we only have about, I think, eight more minutes or so before you have to leave. Okay. But um, so I think what's more dumb than, than the, the fracking industry fracking and creating these earthquakes that are that may lead to their own downfall, I think what's more dumb than that is the people allowing it, right? I mean, I, I'm so, I'm so, it, it, may, it makes my head hurt when I see people on my Facebook feed post things about why fracking is okay and, oh my God, conspiracy theorists are saying that fracking's, you know, actually destroys water sources. And it drives me crazy when I see people defending the oil companies and how, you know, uh, uh, pipeline saying pipelines are way safer than than trains or cars or, or trucks or anything, right? But they're not safer than on-site solar. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like this is the stuff that drives me crazy, right? And so what I think, so I've been so impressed by the people that that, that got together at Dapple and stood their ground. To, to make something happen. And I think this is huge because people have been so fucking weak. And this is what's been driving me crazy is nobody will take a stand. And they'll take a stand on their Facebook page, but they won't take a stand in real life. And so I think that what Dapple has just proven is that people can actually have an impact when you stand together for what you believe and not just you know trying to get your Facebook post shared a bunch of times, right? And so... And this is what I've been saying for for like the, over the last year during this election is guys, you know, voting's great, 
you know, do, do your thing. You know, it may or may not make a difference. Who knows if there actually is election fraud or not? Like, I've seen I've seen studies on both sides, and there may be a point where you're going to have to stand in the street. You're going to have to stand in the street. You're going to have to protest. We're going to have to. I mean, just like what what happened in in Korea, right? Where the people stood in the street until the president. Uh, until, until she uh, until she she quit, right? She got impeached. She, uh, you know. Well, she didn't quit. She was she was impeached, which exactly. is much worse. Yeah, and, and but that, you know what's really that. but you know what's really amazing about that? What's that? What What's interesting is that the Korean government and fifty of the largest corporations paid for something called the Global Leaders Forum, and they asked me to come all the way to Korea and yeah. to moderate and to speak on the closing panel. And the closing panel was called Abolish the Government. So it's, it's, what's so fascinating is that there's a, there's a history of Japan and Korea, uh, and to a lesser extent other countries, but you know, those are the two main ones, uh, looking for outside permission or looking for outside approval to do things. Now, I didn't suggest that I do a panel called Abolish the Government. <laughs> they didn't even ask me. They just assigned it to me and they said, oh yeah, here's, this is, this is on your to-do list. Like, go, 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 give, go make the case. Hey, I'm, I'm creative. I can make a case for abolishing the government in Korea. No problem. I did. And two weeks later, she was gone. And I'm just thinking, wow. I mean, this was, was a coordinated good. fashion. Right. So to some extent, I don't know that corporations are, are you know, against Donald Trump. But what I find fascinating is this. There's something very odd about this, this whole American political scene. Not one Fortune 100 executive endorsed Donald Trump, and right. yet his agenda is com entirely in service to them. And I wonder, you know, and he had the Silicon Valley meeting, and the only person sitting at that table who wasn't re blood relation of his, uh, who supported him, was was Peter Thiel and his vice president, um, Mike Pence. The rest were like with Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt is is like involved in Hillary's campaign, and he was there. Um, you know, Facebook is famously in favor of Hillary. So I just wonder. And he was looking. Donald Trump was looking at the people in the meeting to say, "Well, you can trade. I'll let you can do trading." And they're just sort of staring at him. It's like, "What do you mean we can trade? What does that? What does that even mean?" I mean, if Donald Trump said to China, "China, we're going to block certain imports from you until you allow Google and Facebook and Twitter to to operate freely, just like we allow." you know, your internet companies to operate in the US, then I could understand it, but I don't even, I'm not even sure what that means. It's like, uh, it seems like terms that are meant for an industrial age for the information age. So I'm not, I don't get why corporations on the one hand were not supportive and now they're so supportive. I think that, that part of this is that they're just trying to keep some level of stability because there's a, there is something looming over the heads of everybody who has who has a memory of history, and the memory is of what happened during the the first few years of the Reagan administration. Interest rates, federal fund rates, which like right now you, you might know that the U.S. debt is somewhere in the area of the, the admitted federal debt is about 20 trillion dollars, and last year we paid 280 billion dollars in interest. Now that may sound like a lot then, mm -hmm. it's very little. 
it's only about 1.4% interest rate. So can wow. you imagine what would happen if countries around the world started coordinated dumping of U.S. Treasuries and basically you know, interest rates started spiking in the United States? Interest rates just went up this week. And what if they keep going up? Well, for one thing, people are not going to be buying houses. You're not going to have construction jobs. And if you don't have construction jobs, you know, you have, um, after a time of, of relatively little construction, um, that's going to have knock-on effects. And those are actually pretty good jobs. So I can see the possibility that businesses right now are afraid of opposing things and creating, you know, waves because if we have instability, our interest rates go up. If our interest rates go up, we have uh, another recession. And I just don't think anybody wants to have another recession. So there's going to be a lot of people who will be biting their tongues even as the as protests um, go in. I have to I have to disagree with you though that protests will definitely make a difference in general because it was during the Bush administration there were some of the greatest protests in human history against one human being and I don't know that it made a difference because Obama continued the policies of right. George Bush that were so unpopular and he was a Democrat who had control of both houses of Congress and then who is the standard bearer for the Democratic Party Hillary Clinton a person who voted for those same policies I mean on what policies of George Bush that people were protesting was Hillary outspoken against? I can't name one. Can you? No. And this is this is the thing. Like the the the, the system is not working because it doesn't matter who we vote for, they continue to carry on the same policies. So I'm not saying that the protests are going to happen to. Okay. Well, that that that's in, where I agree with you. Yeah. To, to put in a you know to get Trump out and put Hillary in or get Hillary out and put Trump in. I'm saying it's got to happen to change the entire system because, I mean, have, have you seen the, uh, the study that, um, that's on represent.us uh, about, I, I forget what school, it was like Harvard or something, did this study uh, that, that proved that, that our vote actually doesn't matter, right? And, and so it says it doesn't, like, it doesn't matter if we vote for war or against war. What really matters is those of the wealthy corporations that, that are actually running the place, right? And so that is what that is what people are starting to realize. People are realizing that that this isn't actually a democracy. People are really starting to understand that, and it's it's really coming to a head where people are saying, "Look, we can't trust the government to to keep us safe. We can't trust the government." To, to do what's best for us, I need to go block this pipeline by myself. And and like you said earlier on our conversation, like they got 300 something tribes together in unison. And these a lot of these tribes had been uh, fighting against, not like fighting, fighting, but like they weren't in agreement with each other, right? They were on bad terms and they've all come together. They've all united. And so my hope my hope, my creation, what, what I'm going to continue to dream into is that the U.S. is at some point going to realize, oh, my God, they've been pitting us against each other, you know, and we need to band together and create some actual change, right? No matter who's elected, no matter what's, what they say, we need to hold whoever that is accountable to work for us and not for the corporations, 
So that's that. Anyway, you still there? I, I know I know you have to go. Are you are you done? And natural gas economy. And there's nothing stopping other people from driving less. I don't see any evidence that people are driving less. Though I right. do see that at least in California you have a lot of people who are driving electric cars. And I have a friend um, from my class at MIT who is a big Obama donor and who said that that he was really uh, surprised when he would go to White House events that there were all these people pulling up in Teslas. Um, I think we're going to have something like 30 automobile companies coming out with electric cars, and we have 30 automobile companies that um, have self-driving cars. And supposedly, according to Tony Siba, each self-driving car will replace 15 regular cars. And so I don't, uh, I see, you know, all kinds of ways to vote. But if you want, really want to, like, fight against the oil companies, then the way to do it is to get an electric car or simply to take an Uber and also demand that Uber give an option to be picked up in an electric car. Wow. Just that thing. If you like if I could, because there's lots of cars where I where I am in Santa Monica, at any given moment the button for Uber, I have eight eight different choices. So that's um right. the kind of thing that's going to be um you know, it that that choice is going to be very useful. Cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think people need to have these options. I think we need to. Um, I, 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 there was a, a document that you sent me that was like a hundred ways to protest, <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. Um, everything from writing a letter to, uh, you know, creating a sign. Um, anyway, I know you've got to run. So, Alex, thanks for all your amazing information, uh, and thanks for doing all the research that, you, that you're always doing. And it's always just such a fascinating thing. And um, you're my favorite person to get my news from. So thanks for being here with me. Well, thank you, Ben. And uh, tell us about our guest for the, the show next week. Great. Uh, our guest for the show next week is uh, Dennis Yu. It's a man named Dennis Yu. And he's creating some really fascinating stuff and really changing the marketing industry. And the uh, the the program next week is actually – it's called the, the, future of auto, uh, the Future of Jobs in the Automation Industry or in, in, an, in an automated economy. Um, and so what it's going to be about is, is, uh, is how, it, and it, it's one of our favorite topics uh, that I've noticed over the last several weeks, is talking about how AI is going to be taking over a lot of our jobs. And so what happens? Like, are, are humans going to become uh, unnecessary for, for jobs? Or, or what's, um, how do we create value for ourselves? And so this is one thing that his company does is it gives away free information so we can do things ourselves. or you can have, um, anyway, we'll, we'll let him talk about it. It's going to be, it's going to be a fascinating show. Excited to have him on finally. It's been well, two months since I, I've been trying to create this show with him. Nice. To me, one of the most important things that we can be discussing is um, I really want to support President-elect Trump in his goals of creating 25 million jobs and approving, accelerating the approval of the 4,000 drugs that are at the FDA. And I see these two things being completely related issues because ultimately, if we let corporations, whether they're pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical companies or oil companies, uh, have their way, 
they will eliminate jobs and they will keep monopolies. And I right. think that um, that you can't have corporations dictating all of the policy and create 25 million jobs. Right. You have to choose one or the other. Are you going to have public participation and discussion or are you going to have the corporations and billionaires have the say? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And I think if, if we have one thing that we should absolutely judge the Trump administration as a success or failure on, all other things aside, he promised 25 million jobs. And I think that that's what we should be saying every day. And we're looking at every single decision. Will this create 25 million jobs? And I want to just say in closing that the three of the biggest sources of jobs that we could have, first one is solar. Solar is creating jobs 20 times the rate of the rest of the economy, even in those years when the, the economy was, was creating jobs during the Obama administration. And we have a person in charge of energy who is not pro-solar. Um, we have... Uh, and also we have an emphasis on the oil industry. It takes uh, $50,000 to create a solar job and about $5 million to create an oil industry job. That's according to the book The Oil Curse, which has tremendous numbers of uh, statistics about this. So we can create 100 times as many jobs per dollar invested in solar as we can in oil. Uh, I, I, I have yet to see anybody justify you going to oil and doubling down on oil as a job creator. The second big thing is uh, marijuana legalization. Uh, if we just simply go ahead with federal legalization, because the, the whole basis for making marijuana illegal is Schedule 1, saying it has no medical use. This is simply factually fraudulent, and it's the kind of thing that if someone else did it, the, uh, the U.S. federal government would sue them and fine them, because it's a lie. Well, the government so holds the if we just for it. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so the government itself put those – you submit patents under penalty of perjury. So somebody in the U.S. government said under penalty of perjury, here's how you can use cannabis to have – to treat people for health conditions. And, you know, we also have uh, construction and infrastructure. And so I think that, that this is the place where we're, we can look at the Trump administration and say, is it really going to create jobs? Is what, and, and if so, what infrastructure? Um, so I, I, I can't wait to have this discussion because what's going to come out of this discussion, at least from my part, is that if Donald Trump wants to create 25 million net jobs, uh, then 50 million jobs have to be created in a country where about, there are only about 138 million people in the workforce and our labor force participation is 62%. So next week's show should be awesome. I can't wait. It's one of my favorite topics. Uh, I'll talk to you then. Cool, brother. Talk to you soon. Have a good one. All right. Bye, Ben.